Good morning, afternoon, and evening, and whatever time of day it happens to be, wherever you are, woman beings, this is Woman Being Podcast, and we are joined today by a very special guest, not just a random person that we found on Instagram, although that is true, her name <laughs> is Savannah Ray Corono. She is a badass. I'm going to tell you more about her in a second. Let's dive right in. This is Woman Being, where we explore thoughts and opinions and have the freedom to change our minds. Without expectation or judgment, we will hold a safe space and support each other as we navigate together in the form of feminine. So Savannah, thank you so much for joining us today. For those of you that are not familiar with her, she has her master's in divinity and she studies American religion's influence on culture and human rights. And she's also the founder of Please Elaborate. Savannah, thank you for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) We're excited too. We've been like lurking on your Instagram for, I don't know, several months now. We've always thought you were so cool. And we were blown away when you were like, yes, let's chat. And then we had the best chat. And now we're going to have another chat. And everybody else gets to hear the chat. Okay, so to get us started, you have been studying the influence of American Christianity on culture and on human rights. Can you unpack what that means a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I originally went into a seminary to be a pastor. And um, in doing so, I saw a lot of conflict between what was uh, present and um, kind of the, the culture of the world outside of the church and the culture of the church and realizing that a lot of my upbringing in the church um, didn't make a lot of sense when it applied to the actual real life outside of my bubble. And so I began to study that and study the um, the mistranslations and the uh, misinterpretations of scripture and Christianity and looking at the, the how that conflicts with American culture sometimes and how it negatively or positively influences American culture and human rights. And so looking at the history of uh, sexuality, the history of racism, the history of sexism uh, in our country and looking at where the American church played a role in perpetuating those movements and sometimes sometimes assisting in the and the, the obliteration of those movements, but for the most part, mm-hmm. playing a role in the perpetuation of some systemic problems in our country. And so looking at those, how religion relates to specifically American Christianity relates to human rights and culture in America is really my happy place. Yeah. And th- it's a very interesting place to be. What led you to go, I need to study this? <laughs> uh, like I said, I, I went into seminary thinking that I was going to be a pastor and um, worked in a few churches, a lot of churches, um, had a lot of really great experiences. I respect pretty much everyone that I worked with. We had really good experiences for the most part. Um, but there were some red flags and there were some instances where uh, pushback, I experienced pushback in trying to talk about things like the prosperity gospel or racism or white mm-hmm. Jesus. And with those things, I started to realize, oh, maybe as my mentor says, maybe I don't need to go in the front door. Maybe I need to go in the back door. And so looking at how to achieve um, social justice in America can't really start in the church. It's just not the place where that is going to be efficient. So I outside of the church and it's a really long story that I can try, try and make as short as possible. But the long story short is, uh, yeah, I went into school wanting to be a pastor and then 
seeing how being a pastor called me sometimes to turn a blind eye to some things in this world that I refuse to turn a blind eye to and thinking, hmm, maybe I should step outside of this church and look at what the actual problem in the world and see how I can speak into that and realizing that the American church has um, a deep, deep obsession with tradition that prohibits it from making any real beneficial, effective influence in culture today because of its overall general refusal to evolve um, for fear of being of this world. You know, we hear that language a lot in, in, in the Christian circles. So yeah. this fear of wanting to be of this world is really the medicine that the church needs to have an influence in the, in the world and culture. And so there's this conflict of the church wanting to be... Um, rooted in specific traditions that have often perpetuated toxic ideas, ideologies, and theologies. And until the American church decides to step away from those traditions, I think we're going to continue to see a decline in the church's influence on American life. Uh, And again, this isn't to say all churches are bad. I have had the great privilege of working at some and attending some incredible churches. And I know some 10 out of 10 pastors and ministers um, but I do think that there is a general, a general sickness in, in the American church that unless we want, unless, you know, until the church decides to look at that overall sickness and take a holistic look at it and um, a, a responsibility for it, I think we're going to continue to see a decline in the American church's influence uh, on culture. Well said. You literally just gave me so much goosebumps. <laughs> and like, I, I really relate to that because I did like three years of ministry school, volunteered a year and was out. And I left the experience going, hmm, this actually isn't quite what I thought I was signing up for. Um, I actually don't know that we're truly taking care of people. So it's, it's really fascinating to hear you talk about that. I'm really curious to know, what are some of the most shocking things that you've discovered as you've been researching and going on this journey? Um, and how has that influenced you personally? Cause I can't imagine that you've walked away without a serious impact. Uh, yeah. And I'll preface this by saying I no longer identify as a Christian. I have a, I have respect for all religions, including Christianity. Um, but there are some pivotal parts of Christian doctrine. I, uh, I do not believe. And therefore I, I don't identify as a Christian mainly out of respect for other Christians. It's not fair for me to call myself a Christian when I don't believe in heaven or hell. And I believe all religions are humanity's efforts to get to know the world and the people in it. <laughs> that's, that's not exactly aligned with the Christian doctrine. And so it's not fair for me to call myself a Christian when other Christians have very specific beliefs that I totally respect, but I do not share. So I want to honor their, their space and not try and lump myself in it. So I do not align with Christianity anymore. But some of the shocking things that I've discovered that kind of catapulted me into stepping out of that sphere, um, surprisingly, one of the biggest things was how blatant we have been with our translations of scripture throughout the year. Mm, Yeah. And when I say years, I mean thousands of years. So looking at how different words were translated incorrectly, uh, the, you know, you was translated as I, and that's a really big deal or plural, you all translated as me or uh, a pedophile translated as homosexual. You know, there's mm-hmm. that whole thing that we've talked about and I've done some videos on. And 
Yeah. I could go on and on and on and, and how, you know, the, the Kushite, the story of the Kushite in the Bible has been used to perpetuate racism. Um, and there's all of these different stories that have been used to perpetuate abuse, perpetuate ostracization and otherization in, in cultures and other demographics in America. And so all of that because we didn't take our time to accurately translate or bring on a diverse board of scholars to translate the Bible. Both older, white, wealthy men translate the Bible for a very, very long time up until recently. And so that was a really big shock to me that I figured out in seminary when I went to Fuller Theological Seminary. Shout out to that school because they were really, really great at, at at forcing you to look at all sides of anything. And that's really my whole motto. And so they really, really ingrained in me this habit of when you approach anything, look at it from all sides, from the entire scale, the entire gradient. And in doing that, I came across all of these mistranslation mistranslations. <laughs> we talked about them in, in school and, and I talked about with other religious leaders and scholars and and so that was probably one of the biggest shocks. And then the other was just how bad women are treated in the church. Mm-hmm. It's bad. <laughs> and, you know, I see men promoted at breakneck speed in the church. I yeah. see them go from admin to, well, let's be honest, they don't start out as admin. They start out as director. Yeah. And they go director to pastor to associate pastor to senior pastor in 18 months and women women it takes them years to get to get on stage on a sunday you know women have to work at church for five six seven eight ten years before they're given a chance at the pulpit and all men have to do is say can i take a shot at this and they're given a platform and that happened to me several times that's happened to some incredible women that i know and so Watching that and, and, and being actually a part of that in the church was really, really hurtful to me. And again, this isn't every church. This was my experience. And I hold respect for all of the churches that I've worked at and been a part of. Um, but watching how I, I think this word is overused sometimes, but how how often women are gaslit mm-hmm. and you know, we're told, you know, your experience is not valid because it's not my experience. And mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we're told that, that we need to show, we need to show results before we can be promoted. It's, we have to give proof that we are worth a promotion. Men just have to show potential. Mm-hmm. And that is really, really hard to experience as a woman. And I think that's in any industry that you work in, but me working in ministry for a while, that's the, the lens that I use. And And ministry is weird because it has this, me going on a tangent now, but ministry and working for the church is different than working for even a nonprofit or a corporation outside of, you know, a secular organization. When you're working for a church, you get away with a lot more toxicity because you have religion on your side. Mm -hmm. And a great example of this being, and I'm, I'm, creating some videos on this right now, but it is um, the intimacy and sex life of your staff, mm-hmm. which is weird until you put it into church context. And, yeah. you know, I have been asked on staff at churches before about my sex life. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Or lack thereof before marriage. Uh, because, you know, I was told that if I had sex before marriage, I would burn in hell. And so <laughs> things that you would be terminated for in the secular world, like asking your employees about their intimate life and um, rewarding or punishing them by behaving a certain way within that element, you are totally fine with talking about in the religious world. That to me is very scary mm-hmm. that that there are things that the church can get away with simply because it's deemed for religious purposes. When in any other secular context, there would be legal consequences for such behavior. And so that's another really shocking thing that I was kind of like, Oh my God, what the hell is this? (laughs) And um, so yeah, walking through that and really, really, once I stepped away from the church and kind of looking at all my experiences, I thought, Oh, that's, that's abuse or that's neglect or that's, that's toxicity. And being able to identify those things once I was stepping out of that space was really shocking. So mm-hmm. translations, often we have just blatantly haphazardly translated the Bible. And two, what the the religious world gets away with under the guise of spiritual health is mm. very shocking to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I actually, I know of someone who literally got fired from their position at a church because they were having sexual relations with their partner. Like it's, it's wild to think that that's something that, that, that an employer can make a sort of moral call on you in that way. Uh, on something that's not even like the societal standard, you know, like it is not, we don't live in a, you know, a theocracy. We don't live in a, in a nation where our laws are dictated explicitly by, um, by our like religion, although sometimes it feels like that. You know, I totally understand where churches come from when, you know, they, you know, I think I believe at my, one of the churches that I I either worked at or was affiliated with, I signed a contract saying that I was not going to have sex before marriage. Mm -hmm. And, and I didn't, and that didn't stop male staff from talking about my sex life or lack thereof. Um, in meetings without my permission. So it's like, you can follow the rules to a T and it's still, you're still going to get that. Yeah. Wow. And I totally respect and understand, you know, that's what the, the Bible says. And so you make your employees sign that, uh, that contract. I, I, you know, in in a way I don't have a problem with that. I totally understand that you believe something, you expect your employees to abide by the same thing. And if you, if they choose that they don't want to do that, then they don't sign the contract and they don't get the job. You know, it is what it is. I do think that there is a right and a wrong way to go about a breach of those contracts or assuming that women are promiscuous or assuming the fault of the, of the woman. There are, there's a good way and a bad way, a right and a wrong way to deal with those matters. Uh, and the church often does it the wrong way. Oh, <laughs> absolutely. Because the male pastors get to have affairs and do the things and they go and, and they hide get away up for, for the reputation of the you know, church. Six to eight months and then they're reinstated back to their position, right? Mm-hmm. And it's just like, uh. Yeah. And well, that's a, that's actually an interesting thing because you see that happening for men. I mean, sometimes, sometimes no, sometimes men are kicked out, but usually after like multiple affairs and the press gets into it and the church can no longer control the story. But that's another issue. I don't think I've seen any women who have like, quote, fallen in this regard who have been reinstated. Made it back. I can't think of one that I've seen. And yeah. So that's for sure an injustice that (laughs) (laughs) it just grinds me. But um, 
So not to like continue on the soapbox, but just like one more little like soapbox thing <laughs> is just that these men that are mostly men that are insistent on discussing sex lives have no formal training. They've never been to sex ed or if they were, it was a long, long time ago. They are not certified sex educators. None of that. And it just it kind of boggles my mind that it's like, oh, this man in authority assumes he knows everything and is authorized to talk about finances and relationships and sexual intimacy and mental health and emotional wellness. And it goes on and on and on. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway. and why wouldn't he? Because he continues to be promoted just because he could do yeah, it. He's he, trying. And it, it really, I think for men, it's like you don't have to be equipped. God just calls you. For women, oh, I'm going to need to see your resume. And a hundred percent. That's it. We have to show proof and men have to show potential. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a word. (laughs) That is a word. So I wanted to... Really quick, if you hear my puppy whining in the background, she's not being abused. She has a sock in her mouth and she wants to bury it. (laughs) Sobbing because we don't have a pile of dirt in our apartment. The audacity. Well, oh, sweet babe. How dare you? <laughs> Her like being tortured or something in the background. Oh no, you're good. <laughs> so hearkening back actually to one of the things you said earlier, you mentioned um, that you kind of believe that Christianity is losing its influence in culture, which I think is interesting because right now a huge hot topic is the rise of Christian nationalism to the point that e- some evangelicals have even embraced that term and said, yes, I am a Christian nationalist. That is biblical. That is the way it is. Yeah. And it feels like this kind of political movement is rising up. We've seen the overturning of Roe Ro v. Wade. We've seen all sorts of crazy things happening. And it feels like Christianity is gaining influence, but it's kind of morphed into sort of this pseudo-religious political force. Um in my best news anchor voice, has evangelicalism gone too far? I don't know if I am qualified to answer that question, but I will give some insight of what I see on my end. Sure. And a great resource for this would be my good friend, Tim Whitaker over at the New Evangelicals. We were just talking about this the other day. Oh, he's great. I love his content. He's a good friend of mine. He uh, advises me a lot on these things when I have a, a panic panic attack regarding uh, the religious state of America. Um, <laughs> really great. He would be a great resource to talk about this as well. Um, from what I see outside of the church, um, you know, one fourth of Americans, 42% of Americans identify as evangelical. Hmm. Um, sorry, not one, not one fourth, 42%. So, you know, hmm. four out of 10 mm-hmm. uh, Americans identify as evangelical. That's, that's a huge chunk of, yes. But what I think we're seeing now is a a split. And I don't know if that split is 50-50, but I do know that we are seeing a fracturing of the evangelical denomination, call it that, um, into more, uh, I would say, from a political standpoint, a more moderate way of looking at and approaching evangelicalism. And then we see these evangelical extremists. And I'm learning a lot about this. I've been learning a lot about this over the last year, looking at and researching the history of evangelicalism. And I I do think that the evangelical church is heavily tied to and and makes up, you know, the majority of the, um, the Republican Party. So how does that play out? I think that we will we will find out. 
because this is not the first time in American history that politics have been heavily influenced by religion. You know, we've seen this all throughout history. We've seen this in the 1700s, 1800s, the 1900s. We we saw this um, in the 60s and the 70s. We saw this um, with Nixon and Reagan and and, um, with the evangelical churches. uh, The Republican Party needed the uh, evangelical vote. And so Mm -hmm. we needed to pick an issue. I believe this is in the 60s. The, the Republican Party needed to pick an issue that would uh, captivate the evangelical audience because there's a lot, right? The evangelical party has a has a lot of voting potential, mm-hmm. um, all, you know, being a large at that point a, a majority part of the American population. So, in the '60s, the Republican Party chooses an issue to try and get the evangelical vote. Now, at that time, what the Republican Party had their main ballot issue was segregation. And they realized that the evangelical church was not going to be majorly on board with segregation as the ballot issue. So they switched Mm -hmm. it to, ding, 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 abortion. Mm -hmm. Wow. So before the 60s, the Republican Party was actually pro-choice. Heavily pro-choice. And then we see this flip to pro-life in order to get the evangelical vote. And since then, we've seen this marriage of the evangelical party, uh, evangelical demographic and the Republican party, we've kind of seen this mm-hmm. marriage of the two that we don't really notice now, right? Because that was 60 years ago, mm-hmm. uh, but we're seeing the effects of it now. That marriage between the evangelicals and the Republican party has just gotten stronger. And we're seeing that play out. I mean, there's there are videos of, Donald Trump saying that he's pro-choice, pro-choice, pro-choice up until 90 seconds ago when he said Mm -hmm. now all of a sudden he's pro-life because he's running for a Republican office. And so there's this total flip. And I think that's really interesting Mm -hmm. that that says a lot about the American psyche, uh, maybe even just the human psyche of how we can know all of this history and yet accept what's happening currently as wholehearted truth, even though it directly contradicts what has historically happened. That's fascinating to me. And that's kind of where I sit is, is how looking at what is happening right now with um, the American state of affairs, if you will, how, how we can look at what is happening in front of us. And even though it contradicts every thing we've been told or, 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 uh, you know, large vast of our history even if it contradicts all of that we will still accept it as total truth because someone is telling us that it's true yeah that's fascinating to me there is a lack of accountability for everybody to do their the work of looking at what's happened in history in order to make sense of the present we've kind of shut the door on history because there's too many skeletons there so we've shut the door on history in order to create the present in a vacuum and I think that's very dangerous because the past, looking at the past, well, that's your one, that's your primary tool that's going to help you become better is looking at what happened in history in order to become yeah. present. Well, if we've shut off the past and we can't look at it and we can't acknowledge it, we're bound to repeat ourselves, right? Those who ignore history are bound to repeat it. Absolutely. And so to, to answer your question, I think your question was, do, do I think that evangelical 
is losing, the evangelical church is losing influence? Was that the question? Well, yeah, I was kind of hearkening back to you sort of talking about that, but it kind of feels like, I would say from on a political perspective, it feels like it's gaining influence. And so there, but there is also this reality of mass deconstruction happening. People are leaving the church in droves, yet this political party is also rising with the support of the evangelical movement. Over the next, you know, 10, 15 years, that answer will reveal itself. I think we are at an interesting point in history where evangelicalism has a, you know, a chokehold on a political Mm -hmm. party, but this isn't the first time that's happened and it's never ended well. Yeah. Mm. What, what does that tell you? You know, if we're not going to look at history, that's fine. We must be bound to repeat it. And I think that the evangelical church and the Republican party are at a crossroads where they're going to have to choose. Are we going to learn from the past or are we going to ignore the past? Mm -hmm. And that will determine what happens next. Yeah. Yeah. I'm on the edge of my seat. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's, it's truly infuriating to think about that, that history behind um, the way that, you know, the Republican party and the evangelical church have become, you know, bedfellows. And uh, the, the fact that there's this like flip of a switch towards abortion being a cause, it, it shows to me the insincerity behind it because it's it's about power, right? It's not about a true belief in what life is or isn't or um, anything to do with morality. It's about maintaining power and control over a, our political system. And so that's infuriating. And then it's also infuriating when you talk about the the evangelical church's insistence on not looking back at the past. I think that it stems in part from this false idea of what faith is, which is to them, uh, to many people, faith is, well, just believing blindly um, rather than uh having a source of of hope um and the the bible has a is is a history book right like the bible has so much history in it. it is it is a story of of the the israelites and it's it's a way of telling history although not all of it is necessarily historical in the way that we think of it today um but there's this rich history of looking back that i think is now rejected when we talk about the the bad things that have happened in more recent history when it comes to the evangelical church and and that leads to people just accepting things blindly and to the point of conspiracy theories and <laughs> all sorts of other manipulation that they'll they'll allow themselves to be prayed to because it's fa- having faith absolutely and it's so much easier to believe something at face value than to do the work of proving if it's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've all, we've all done that, you know, even mm-hmm. you know, Republican or Democrat, you know, evangelical, whatever demogra- demographic or um, denomination you fall into, every group has, has done something where they've said one thing and then flipped it and said another thing, right? We've all done that. Yeah. But there's, there's, when, when we grow up as, when we're kids and our parents, you know, maybe they are, our parents are Christian and they teach and raise their kids to be Christian, whatever, Mm -hmm. that child is going to believe what their parents tell them because your parents are your authoritative figures. Your parents Mm -hmm. are God to you, right? Dependent on them for everything. And so you are in the dependent phase of life. You are 100% dependent on these people to give you food and shelter and guidance and love. And you believe everything that they tell you as true. 
And then we enter a phase of interdependence, right? You get a little bit older and you're dependent on your parents, maybe for, you know, for food and for money, you know, they need to like pay for your school book, you know, your textbooks and your school uniform or your new shoes or whatever. And, but you're also, you have a little bit of dependence. Maybe you have a cell phone and you've got to show up after, after practice, you need to be somewhere at a certain time. And, or you've got to call your parents when you get somewhere, like you have responsibilities. And so you're in this inter interdependence phase. And then eventually you graduate, you go off to college and you graduate and you get married and you have kids and you're in a fully independent phase. You go from dependence, interdependence, and then independence. And I think from a spiritual perspective, we don't walk our, our spirituality through those th- same three phases of independence, mm-hmm. interdependence, and then independence. Instead, we are stuck in dependence. And I say we, because I have also been a part of this as well. I have fall victim to this of just being told something and expecting it as true, because that's how we started this whole thing. That's how we started our spiritual journey was being told something and then accepting it as true. But really we need to then enter a space of interdependence, right? Where maybe you're, you're asking questions and you have a religious leader in your life that can kind of mentor you through those questions and guide you to some resources and you go dig up some answers and then they help you find some answers or you, you do something wrong, or maybe you mess up big time and they kind of walk you through how to correct that and make amends. And then you enter independence where now you are accountable for your own spiritual journey. And of course your leaders will always be there to guide you, but there's that sense of independence of, Hey, if I've got a question or if I'm being told something, I am now responsible for going and looking to that that thing is true. Mm-hmm. And we don't really walk through that. There's not that trend of dependence, interdependence, independence in the church. I don't think the church is set up to walk children into their teens, into their adulthood in that same way as we would with anything else. And so I think that is a change that would need to occur in the modern American church is to allow starting with the youngest generation, allow them to have those breathing, the breathing space to have those three phases, allow them to be dependent on their parents and then allow them some interdependence and then expect dependence. I mean, uh, independence where you expect your in your church or in your religious community to not just blatantly accept what you tell them is true, but that they are going to go do the work of assuring that it's true and valid and maybe come back to you with something that they found that contradicts you. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's a, a change I would like to see in the modern American church is to allow for that breathing room for questions and conflict and contradictions, and maybe not always resolution, <laughs> but I think yeah. those three definitely need to happen. Right. But in order to do so, the church would have to accept that a church can be made up of a cacophony of opinions and different interpretations of things and new ideas and even new expressions of Christianity. And right now, I mean, as far as my experience has extended, the church is not okay with that. The church says there is one way, this is it, and you must follow. And so, I mean... That's a whole beast. But I mean, that, that sounds lovely. Yeah. It sounds really nice. 
Yeah, by and large, that has been the way that the evangelical church has gone. It's it's this idea that uh, everyone must fall in line to a black and white narrative. Uh, and there are like Christian communities that are much smaller and much less influential that do allow for that that multitude of opinions and that diversity of thought, but they're not the dominant one or the one that has the cultural sway the way that the evangelical church does. Uh, and there's this huge concern with hypocrisy as if as if changing your mind or allowing space for other opinions is a bad thing. Mm. <laughs> and it's just it it it's just not. It's it's a it's a warped view of of what it what it looks like. And it's also again goes back to that power and control. Mm-hmm. And speaking of power and control, I actually want to pivot a little bit and talk about uh the church and the LGBTQ plus community. I think that this links into this as um, the church uh, continues to not allow diversity of thought around this subject specifically, um, continues to utilize their view on a sexual ethic as a way to essentially oppress people um, in the queer community. And so um, I wonder if you could talk about some of what you've discovered when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community and the Bible, um, and also maybe touch on some of your fascinating discoveries when it comes to the gendering of the Christian God. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Where do we start? (laughs) There's so much. It's a singer. (laughs) Again, I have a deep respect for the American church. I do. I really do. And though I don't identify with it or call myself a direct participant of it, I did for a very long time. And so anyone who's listening know that when I'm speaking of the American church and specifically the evangelical space, that I'm speaking from a, uh, from a perspective of we can do better. And I say we because I I was a part of that community for so long that I I have a unique perspective where I'm kind of this liaison between the church world and the outside the church world, right? I try and kind of be someone who can walk in between both of those worlds, being a participant in both. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. I never want to come off as I'm bashing or belittling or just talking bad about the American church, because I know that the American church has offered a lot of good in the world. That being said, there is a lot of room for improvement and there is a lack of acknowledgement of the damage the American church has done to uh, minorities and specifically looking at the LGBTQ plus community. My, and I'm not, I come up with this, this theory, this is kind of a theory and uh, an observation made by many theologians and scholars, but there's this idea that the uh, being gay and things like abortion, those are things that do not tend to show up in high-class elite societies. That does not mean that abortions and gay people do not occur in high-class elite societies. They're just covered up, right, Um, or ignored. But the American church, the evangelical church, is predominantly made up of wealthy white people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we don't see a lot of direct condemnation for greed, lust, gluttony. We don't see a lot of that condemnation outwardly in the American evangelical church because those are the things that that demographic is doing. 
So they don't want to call that out as a whole. I mean, that's the things that most people, right? We're all guilty of of greed and, and gossip and all of these different things, right? Nobody's perfect, but we don't see a lot of condemnation or um, loud objection to those types of sins. What we do see a lot of condemnation from the new and the the new evangelicals. That's what I was just. <laughs> From the <laughs> church is um, abortion and being gay, mm-hmm. and focusing on on the queer community right now. I, I again, I did not come up with this theory. This is not my own, but there is this th- this thought that 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 is a topic: queerness and being gay and identifying as the in the LGBTQ community is something that the evangelical church can condemn because they're not directly affected by it. They don't allow LGBTQ people to hold leadership positions. If someone is gay in the evangelical church, they're covering it up. They're hiding it. They're not advertising it. People are not freely gay commonly in the evangelical church. Mm -hmm. Um, The evangelical can condemn being gay, can condemn homosexuality because it's not something that directly affects their group to their knowledge. And so that kind of creates this chasm between the evangelical church and the LGBTQ community. There is historically been um, Bible passages that have been twisted, read out of context, history ignored in order to perpetuate homo, uh, homophobic theologies. We all know this things in Leviticus and, and Timothy and all, all of these different passages talking about homosexuality, but a lot of the New Testament, that word is translated as homosexual, but it's actually pedophile, or it means a man with boy. Um, read into that what you will. But so there's all of these different things happening there. It's not just one issue where if the church did this, homophobia would no longer be an issue. It's a deep rooted global historical mistranslation, misunderstanding, and intentional ostracization of the LGBTQ community by the European Western world. And it won't be fixed by one thing, (laughs) obviously, but I think this is a really tough question to answer. I'm trying to do it gracefully, but you know, the, the Western world, Europe had a huge influence on what Christianity looked like throughout the rest of the world because of colonization, right? So all of these European Christians went down to Africa and uh, the Middle East and they colonized a lot of countries and they they forced conformity into their way of living out Christianity. Well, in all of these different areas, we were seeing homosexuality. We were seeing bisexuals. We were seeing homosexuals. We were seeing these different sexual behaviors in all of these different countries and traditions. And then the Western you know, these European colonizers come by and say, hey, no, that's not how we interpreted the Bible. You need to conform to our way of sexuality. Mm-hmm. And then we see this perpetuation of this heteronormative relationship in the Christian church that's then promoted. And anything that is counter to that heteronormative relationship is seen as evil or wrong, um, biblically incorrect. When that's not necessarily something that was even promoted or emphasized in the Bible. We've just since then twisted it to be so similarly to how the Bible talks about slavery and gives rules and guidelines around slavery. It doesn't condemn slavery. It literally gives rules to how to have effective slaves, not great. Yeah. (laughs) Good. But we've since evolved and we've learned how to take those passages in the old Testament and the new 
And we've learned to evolve those passages with time and, and humanity's evolution because we've condemned slavery, right? Slavery is illegal. Well, if slavery is illegal now, that contradicts slavery's legality in the Bible. And, and acknowledging that contradiction didn't hurt us, right? We acknowledge that those two things don't make sense. There were slaves in the Bible, but we don't have slaves today. We were able to reconcile that because we saw that with the evolution of humanity, we saw that slavery was wrong, that slavery was very unjust. And we did something about it. You know, the Christian church allowed the, the Bible to evolve with time. And even though slavery is present in the Bible, the Christian church has since been able to accept that slavery is wrong. And now we can still have a relationship with the Bible and acknowledge those passages without clinging to the historical tradition of them. Yeah. We have not done that yet with the homophobic passages in the Bible. Mm. I don't know why. I don't know why that is something that the evangelical church, the Christian church as a whole is clinging to so desperately um, because it's not that hard to unpack it and let it evolve. It's actually not a simple Google Scholar search will help you out there. But we haven't seen the church do that work. And I don't know the answer as to why. I am not actively in the evangelical church. So I don't know the benefits that the church gets by pr- promoting homo- uh, homophobic theologies. But it is curious to me that there are very, very racist passages in the Bible, in the original language, right? The Bible was not written perfectly. The Bible holds a lot of flaws. And um, the Christian church had no, not no problem. It was very hard. And it went through this really arduous journey, specifically in the 60s and 70s with civil rights movements as well. Like, of the Christian church trying to untangle those passages about slavery and then reach the, you know, when slavery was abolished and then we see um, desegregation and all of this, we see the church struggling and holding on to those passages that promote racist theologies. They're clinging to them and eventually they let go of them and evolve with time. I don't know why we have not done the same with homophobic passages, but I'm doing my best to try and figure it out. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that's something that the church will really have to take upon itself uh, or herself. I know that the church really refers to the church as as she. Mm-hmm. Um, and the church will have to take on herself and, and figure out and wrestle with. And I will do my best to be an ally in that journey for them. But uh, it's almost it's something that it has to be their choice and they have to actively. Um, I think. With this new wave, this new generation, they're going to see a deep decline in church participation and the church will be at a crossroads. They can either continue this way of traditional homophobic thinking, or if they want to keep new congregants and new tithers and continue to stay in business, they will have to evolve with the times just like they did with those slavery passages. Mm-hmm. That's my two. <laughs> yeah. It's a very long answer. Well, I mean, in almost in a sense, it, it is... A little bit calming to think about it from a historical perspective and be like, oh, yes, inevitably they will have to change. But Mm -hmm. that doesn't um, negate, I guess, the harm that is currently felt and the the trauma that people have experienced and the the deep, deep hurt that um, so many people are processing through as a result. And um, uh, and and are still processing through even even though we've, you know, changed our tune about slavery there's still so much 
pain and um, disparity between the white community and the black community and the church and the black community. And, um, and so it's still, it's nice to look at it from a bigger picture and think inevitably, I mean, maybe we'll become Gilead, but inevitably, (laughs) (laughs) inevitably the church will have to evolve um, in order to keep up. Yep. Yeah. And I mean, I think that like like just like you said, Cal, that the there's there's still racial tension within yes. the church, despite um, the like legal abolishment of slavery here in the United States. Um and we see the church like like sort of, you know, very uh what's the word? Unwillingly uh sort of clawing their way towards progress when it comes to race, when it comes to women in the church, mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, the queer community in the church. And um, I think that to me, so much of that links back to keeping the people who have historically been in power in power. That plays a large role in so the, the the Western world, the Europeans, right, they really controlled the narrative and the depiction of modern Christianity because the um, Western world, the Roman Empire, were some of the biggest, most powerful people for a large mm-hmm. part of history. And they were also Christian for a large part of that history. So the Western world created and dictated this singular depiction of Christianity that included heteronormative relationships and God is a male and kind of a male hierarchy, a male, a patriarchy, if you will, mm-hmm. that we actually don't see a lot in um, African and black liberation theology, you know, this yeah. as female and this God as mother, very, very common in other parts of the world. But because the European Western Christianity dominated what Christianity looked like globally, those different depictions of Christianity tended to be washed out and pushed mm-hmm. aside for this. Um, heavily white, heavily male depiction of God. But in the Bible, God is, the term Yahweh is male and female. The spirit is female, right? And Jesus is male, biologically a man, you know. But so it's kind of this this mix. I know that you guys right now on video, if you're listening on the podcast and you don't see video, I'm literally just like waving my hands in the air like I'm mixing something up <laughs> <laughs> I'm casting a spell. <laughs> Love it. Yeah, the, the the original authors of the Old Testament and the New Testament were desperately trying to depict their God as anything but singularly gendered. Wow. Anything other than singularly gendered. We see that. I mean, if they wanted to make God a man, they would have used a fully male word. They wouldn't have used Yahweh. They would have made the spirit male, right? We wouldn't. We eat. So Jesus is a man. The Holy Spirit, female pronouns are used for the Holy Spirit most often. And then Yahweh is both. So there's 50-50 representation in the Holy Trinity. (laughs) So it's wild to me that this male dominant perspective of God is still thriving. Um, You know, when I, when I used, when I used to be a pastor, I would often talk about God and I would use he and she pronouns just so that everyone in the audience would know that if you're a woman or a man, you are still reflected in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, that's really hard for people to understand. And they think, oh my gosh, you are denying the father. No, mm-hmm. also simultaneously acknowledging the mother. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
the presence, the presence of both does not negate the value of either. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that to me, it is so surprising that that is hard for people to grasp when, if you just look at the language and the words used to describe God, yeah, it is undoubtedly supposed to be anything other than one gender. And in fact, a lot of times God, <laughs> the Bible is described in ways that aren't gendered at all, right? God is the wind right? rushing through the mm. tree. God is, God is fire. It's like, those things aren't gendered. It's air and fire. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, this idea that God has a penis or a vagina is just so comical to me. I'm like, mm. what? <laughs> but it, in another way, it actually makes, I understand how we got here. I don't agree with it and it doesn't make sense, but I can follow the logic because if you are an English uh, the Western world spoke English, which doesn't have gendered language. And you're trying to make sense of these gendered language, ancient tech. Mm-hmm. I can understand how you would have a male dominated perception of God, because even in he- Hebrew scripture and in, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was a male dominated culture. I mean, there's a reason mm-hmm. why women are portrayed so poorly in Bible. There's a reason why not a single book of the Bible was written by a female. There's a reason why in stories of of problem and sin, the women are the sin, right? They're the temptress, the sinner. There's a reason why there's a passage, trigger warning in the Bible about a woman being thrown into the streets to be raped and killed. And and it just is. <laughs> it's not. It just yeah. happens. Um, you know, uh, again, trigger warning. Rape is very heavily prominent in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, women were lowest of lows. To be born a woman was was not a blessing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I do understand how we got here. What I don't understand is how we have not since reconciled where we got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And Instead, we've let this male-dominated theology fester. We've let it dig deep roots into the church. And those roots are going to be very, very hard to dig up. And as someone who attempted to dig up some of those roots while working in the church, and I immediately got cast out, blacklisted, terrible experience. Um, You know, as someone who tried to dig up one of those roots and immediately was, you know, burned at the stake for doing so. I can, I know this is going to be a slow process because who wants to be burned at the stake, right? If you are in yeah. ministry and you feel like, you know what, I want to stand up for women's rights and, and women's equality in the church. And every time you do so, you are punished. That's going to slow the process. Really what we need is men in leadership to allow for women to come in and uproot those deep roots. Men, men can facilitate and encourage women, but it needs to be women that pull those roots out. You can't have men can advocate for female equality in the church. Men can support, but women have to lead this charge. This is our, this is something that can show that women can do things. Women can lead in the church. Women can make change. And if men are the ones to decide when women get equality, that's not really equality. Mm-hmm. Men, men can facilitate, but women need to. So men in the church, if you're a female, if you're a male and you are, have a leadership position in the church, don't go up on the pulpit and say that you encourage women leaders, have a woman go preach a sermon on your pulpit. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. 
right? So men, you know, don't say that you are all for women's rights, but then have an all male or male dominant board. Yep. Mm-hmm. The same goes for, for race and, and all sorts of, of, of elements of diversity. Have people with disabilities on your board. Have people of color on your board. Have wow. a diverse group of people making key decisions in your church. White men, to say that you are for equality is all fine and good, but it will not become truth until you allow people that have, have historically been treated unequally to take part in leadership positions. And so that's what I mean by men cannot be the ones to uproot this uh, misogynistic theology. They have to encourage and allow women to go in and, and, and take up space in the church. That is that is going to be the biggest change because there is nothing worse. Um, okay, there are a lot of things worse, but... <laughs> It's really hard. You know, I've, I've worked at and, and been affiliated with churches where they say we are all for women in leadership. We are so for women in leadership. I mean, Savannah, you're a pastor. Like we are so mm-hmm. for female leadership. And I say, mm-hmm. when was the last time you had a female on your pulpit? And they say, never. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't have time for men saying that they're for equality until it requires them to shut up. I, I just don't have time for that. And and women don't either. You know, we are, we're here for a good time, not a long time. So let's make some, yep. you know, yep. um, you better preach. <laughs> this is for the, the leaders, men. And it, you don't have to be in a church. If you're a leader in a corporate world, in a corporate setting, if you're a man, do not tell women that you are for their equality, have them on your board, have them lead meetings, give them responsibilities and pay them for it equally. Mm-hmm. And do not tell them, show them, give them space to do their thing. Because women historically over and over again, science and statistics has proven that women actually are better for countries' economies when they're in leadership. Female presidents and female leaders actually have better economic history for their country, right? We can lead. And and this idea of just ignoring that, despite again, going back to ignoring that history is only going to damage people in the present and the future. So that is my TED Talk, my milk crate on the corner, um, just kind of my rant. But yeah, men in leadership, Sure. You can say that you're for equality. You can say that you're for women in leadership. You can say that, yeah, I believe that God doesn't have a gender and yeah, 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 whatever. Until you share your pulpit space, until you share your meeting space, until you share your leadership space, until you're willing to set your ego aside and sit down and shut up and let a woman stand up and speak, that equality means nothing. And so that's where, that's where I sit on, Thank you. right? God is not gendered. It's evident linguistically, historically, religiously, spiritually, theologically. It's whether or not we choose to acknowledge that or not, that will determine whether or not we see change in women's rights in the church. Yeah. Wow. And that's that on that. <laughs> Amen to that. Woo. I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yep. I understand as a woman in the workplace, striving to be in leadership it's very validating to hear yep i was explaining this to someone else the other day a girlfriend of mine she was like oh my god yes so women especially so like when i was unmarried in church working for a church unmarried i was was dating my now husband at the time in a long-term relationship committed relationship but i wasn't married yet and Mm -hmm. i was in this church 
And I swear, tell me if this is your experience, where if you are unmarried in the church, even if you're dating or in a committed relationship or even engaged, you're not married. The men around your age that also work in the church are always approach you with like some sort of like stop flirting with me vibe. Mm. I would approach a, a, a guy that I would work with and be like, Hey, like what's going on? Like, how was your weekend? It's, it's good. Like basically saying like, I'm married. And I'm like, dude, I'm just, I'm just trying to, to, to see how you're doing, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just try to treat you like a human. Right. But women, especially unmarried women in the church are viewed so as so dangerous. I'm like, Oh my God, I don't want my wife to see me with an unmarried woman. And I'm like, Oh my God. What? Mm-hmm. It was, and it was very subtle, but it was this, it was this, um, constant feeling or energy as the Gen Z says, a vibe that I was, mm-hmm. that was, Oh my God, you're like, you're being awkward around me because you think that I'm like coming on to you. Yes. Simply because yeah. I'm an unmarried woman. Like, yeah. yeah okay. No. Yeah. God, yeah. like you would, if I sit down, you intentionally don't sit next to me because, you know, like men and women. Mm-hmm. Unless they're trying to marry one another, of course. Obviously. <laughs> and so it was, and I told my friend this and I was like, is that just me? She was like, oh my God. It's such a niche thing that I feel like only, you only know if you have worked in a church as a woman being unmarried. That's a very, very specific niche of women. Yeah. And I just want to know if other women experienced that. It was the most annoying and like I felt so small. It yeah. was one of the most humiliating things. It's why I hated going and going into the church and working in the church as an unmarried woman is that the men around your age who were married would kind of be like, I don't, I'm sorry, I'm married. Like basically they did everything other than like show you their ring. Like, I'm sorry, I'm taken. And I'm like, I'm just happy mm-hmm. for the file you said you'd send me to. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I just was curious if you guys had experienced that. <laughs> um, I would say that I relate, but I was married at 18. <laughs> <laughs> barely out of high school. And so I have barely communicated with any man in my life not married. So <laughs> Yeah, but I've heard I've heard so many stories of women who feel like they can't even receive positions of leadership in the church as an unmarried woman mm-hmm. because there's this I think there's that stigma that that a woman who's unmarried must be trying to somehow seduce uh, an unwitting, innocent man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it goes back to that whole trope that we see in the Bible and perpetuated throughout the history of Christian evangelicalism, that women are these seductresses, these harlots, these adulteresses who are trying to tempt men um, when, in fact, we are human beings who are trying to function in the world alongside are other humans who might happen to be male or female or anything else. And so um, that's definitely prevalent. To piggyback off of that, I just want to like ask the class, uh, how many women in religious leadership we can name that have had sexual moral failures publicly? And then how many men? Because right Mm. now I can count four that are in the news today. So I feel like I'm like, let's can we reevaluate who's the temptress here and like who right? Like what have we allowed? And I'm not saying men are 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 bad in the same way that women have been explained to be bad in the Bible. I'm not saying that at all. Mm. I'm saying it that 
to say women are the temptresses allows this idea, perpetuates this idea that men can get away with anything because they don't have that title on them. Yep. Yeah. That it's almost like when you have a child and you don't discipline them and you tell them that they are incredible, they go on to be the biggest, I'll say jerks <laughs> in the world because they were never called out for their behavior and they were always told that other people were the problem. Yes. So in a way, I feel like we've done men a disservice by being like, no, no, it's it's us. Women are the temptresses. Like they're fine. You guys just live in your life. Yeah. And that in turn has created this idea that men are like, well, I can do anything. Oh, mm-hmm. absolutely. We do a disservice to men and women by pretending that only one demographic has some sort of sexual shortcoming, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, I can't tell you a single woman. And I mean... I didn't work at a church unmarried, but I was an intern, which came with a certain level of higher up authority. And I was in the theology space, which was very male dominated, dominated, except for one woman that I can think of. And I mean, I remember because I was young, I was hungry, I was smart. I always got the distinct impression that I was a threat. Mm. And It was like, oh, you're handing me these papers and this like file or whatever, but what else are you like? Like that was the vibe, right? That was the like, like everyone was cross-examining me because I wanted to learn. And Mm. it was very, it was very strange. Just to go back to what you were saying, like men in the church that have had, have enacted horrible crimes against women or had affairs or whatever. I mean, the list is endless. Like. Women, though, I don't know. I'm like, do that many women mess up in the church? I don't think women are given the opportunity to be in such a leadership position in the first place. Yeah, you have to keep up an absolutely pristine image because women face the threat that if they are exposed for wrongdoing, they will be taken down and out of leadership. Mm-hmm. Whereas men, as you, as we've already talked about, have been told, oh, if you make a mistake, We'll probably let it slide, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll probably ignore it. We'll shove it under the rug. Um, And this is like this idea of um, of women being the temptress and men simply being their their victims uh, is is prevalent throughout our westernized society. Like we see in like it feels like every sexual assault case, women are told, well, why were you drinking? Why were you dressed that way? Why didn't you say no louder? Why didn't you say no enough times? Mm -hmm. And the man is told, oh, well, you didn't really know what was going on, or, oh, you couldn't really help it, or you're just being a guy. It was one night. It was just one night out of your whole life. Like, that's that's not a big deal. And that I think that links back to this this idea that because even though we are not explicitly a Christian nation, our nation in so many ways was founded on these Christian ideals and links back to the way that we've developed our culture. And so this this Christian um, biblical idea of the the temptress uh, is is ingrained. Right. Well, and I was going to say, I've never been, I don't know if I've been ostracized due to not being married because I've always been married. Um, I have been denied opportunity to to do things because of the appearance of what me and another man being together in a situation might look like. And so there, I've experienced lots of coming into an office with another coworker, 
within a church or parachurch organization and them aggressively making sure the door is open. Yes. I have experienced like not being able to participate in certain activities because it would require me and another man to ride in a car alone together. And, um, and, and so I've definitely felt sort of like this looming, oh my gosh, she's really dangerous vibe mm-hmm. from men that um, is, yeah, like you said, humiliating. Yeah. And also extremely, um, what's the word? Deg- deg- Degra- dehumanizing. Dehumanizing, degrading. Yeah, it, it, it's sort of like this... I mean, I have no interest in you, like, 47-year-old dude. Yeah. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> like, Literally. Yeah. I'm just here trying to work and gain opportunity. But, like, my yeah. ambition and my excitement about learning new things and growing and, and climbing the ladder, as you might call it, is a threat to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it feels horrible. Yeah, it does. It feels really horrible. I was literally thinking about that exact thing and like, oh, let's make sure the blinds are open. Like all yeah. the dumb stuff that's like, you think I'm going to like, sorry, explicit moment, but you think I'm going to fuck you right on your desk? Yeah. Like, no. <laughs> like, get out. The energy isn't, this is to, um, it's not, because there is a there is a right way. And I totally, I totally respect and am for, you know, making sure that trigger warning assault doesn't happen in the workplace, right? And I'm yeah. so for that. But the, the tone and the way that the church often goes about protecting um, opportunities for assault in the workplace is not with the tone of this is to protect everyone. It's yeah. this is to protect men from the women. Yes. Yeah. And that's a subtle difference that women mm-hmm. up on heavily. Mm-hmm. Yes. You are protecting yourself from me as a woman, not mm-hmm. let's set up these protocols to make sure that everyone feels safe in this space. That's mm-hmm. not the energy I feel. It's, oh, I don't yeah. want to be in a room alone with you. Let me bring in the admin. So if it's three, it's, it's that kind of energy that says, oh, you you literally think that I don't have any other purpose in this office other than to seduce the men. Mm-hmm. That's very degrading and belittling. And it's a tone that that women pick up on very acutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's just gross, right? Like, I'm just like, you're assuming, one, I desire you when I don't. <laughs> Two, like, you're assuming that, like, I'm not here for genuine purposes. And three, like... You're forgetting the trauma that purity culture has ingrained in me (laughs) like that would ever happen. And so, I mean, there are many other reasons, but those are the few that come to mind. So, okay. Big questions now, Savannah. (laughs) Because all the other ones have been small. (laughs) All the other ones have been chill. We're hitting the big hitters now. (laughs) So I have two big questions. And I don't know that we can answer them all today, but I'm really eager to like hear what your thoughts are and interpretations are on this. Question one, how do you think that the church should be handling the obvious massive wave of deconstruction and deconversion that is currently happening? And two, what guidance do you have for Christians with questions and how to navigate the space of I don't know that I'm totally into this and I'm exploring. Very big questions. The first question, uh, how should the church handle deconstruction? I have no idea. I'm not in the church. (laughs) I will not pretend to. And it's not fair for me to answer that, you know, just legitimately, just because I'm not in the church and I will never try and know what's best for a, for a group that I'm no longer a part of. 
What I can say is what I would do, you know, if I was a leader in an evangelical church, if I was a wealthy white man, Mm. (laughs) which, and I don't mean that offense, you know, I'm not saying that facetiously. I'm just saying that wealthy white men tend to be the large demographic of leaders in the evangelical church. And so if you are a, a, a male leader in the church, I'm, I'm looking to you and saying, what are you going to make space for these questions? And, and also the women leaders, you know, and also the diverse other, you know, diverse leaders, the BIPOC leaders that I know exist. I'm not, you know, I do not want to bash the evangelical church and say, you've never had someone of a minority demographic in a leadership position, all leaders in the evangelical space, um, your, your congregants are looking to you. What do they see? When they look at you, they look to you for guidance. What are you giving them? Are you giving them the demand for conformity? Are you giving them permission to explore? And if you want to become a stagnate institution that declines in participation and influence in the world, you demand conformity. Yep. You want to be a group that continues to grow and have influence and be a part of the good that happens in the world. Then you have to allow for the exploration of your congregants, right? Like you have to allow for the members of your community to explore. Otherwise it becomes the dictatorship. Mm-hmm. You know, look at any country that is under a dictatorship, it's the demand for conformity. If you look at any country that is not a dictatorship, right? You know, in America, we are blessed to not live in a dictatorship. We have for the most part a freedom to explore, right? We have, America is ranked as the number one most individualistic country in the world, which has a lot of flaws, but some of the blessings are we get to choose what we want to do for a living. We get to say, Hey, you know what? I wonder about this. I wonder about that. You know what? We get to question things and we get to look at other religions and say, what is, what is Buddhism offering? What is meditation? And what would happen if, if I, you know, dropped out of this program in school and pursued this one? We're allowed that. We're allowed to question. We're allowed to doubt. We're allowed to explore. I'm asking the evangelical church if they would be willing to do the same for their community members. And I think that's the best way that I could answer it for how to deal with the deconstruction movement is don't fight it, but look at what it's offering and make space for it. Make space for it and know that this is not the first time that this that deconstruction has happened in the church. <laughs> you know, we, the church has gone through waves of deconstruction since yeah. the beginning. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the whole the whole Martin Luther situation, deconstruction. For sure. You know, the, pre- the Protestant Reformation, like all of that is deconstruction. Mm-hmm. We've gone through this time and time again. And so the idea and the concept that deconstruction is new and dangerous is just incorrect, historically yeah. incorrect, and is, a, is, is a direct result of ignoring the past. And so what I would say is I don't know how the church should handle deconstruction, but what I would do if I was a leader in the evangelical church was say, was to allow my community to have those questions, to deconstruct and provide guidance and resources as best I could. And bring in other voices that directly contradicted my own within the theological space, right? Hold those spaces for questions and bring other leaders in so that your congregation isn't developing theologies in a vacuum. Um, Bring in all these different voices and ask questions, make space for it and let it happen and make room for it. That's what I would do. um, If I were in that position. Um, And then what was your second question? 
what guidance would you have for Christians that are asking questions and how to navigate the kind of deconstruction, pre-deconstruction space? What I would say is don't be afraid to get your hands dirty and don't be afraid to let go of what you previously believed. And what I mean by get your hands dirty is don't be afraid to, you know, go on Google Scholar and look up some incredible essays on topics that you're questioning. Please do not, for the love of God, Google things (laughs) because in just the regular search engine, right? Because you're going to get you're going to get biased results. That's just mm-hmm. how the internet works. You're going to get a lot of things that are created by someone that has a very specific belief. I always encourage people to go to Google Scholar, googlescholar.com. Mm-hmm. Boom. Go into that search engine. You're getting peer reviewed. You're getting theologians. You're getting scholars. You're getting Christians and non-Christians, right? So my, my advice would be, don't be afraid to get a little messy and get a little confused. That's what I mean by getting your hands dirty is... We like this clean cut. We know exactly what we believe and why we believe it. And we know this and we know this and we feel really good about it. Don't be afraid to throw that out the window for a little bit, right? You can always go back out and grab it, but don't be afraid to let go of it and explore some other things. I always describe it as like, you can, you can love apples. Eating an orange doesn't negate the presence and existence of apples. You can always go back to apples. They're right there. They're just right there on the table exploring oranges and lemons and limes and all these other fruits there, even when you were enjoying the apple, all those fruits existed already. You're just going and acknowledging them. You're not, <laughs> you're not discovering anything new. You are just looking at pre-existing alternative perspectives that existed long before you were born. And yeah. so that's kind of how I describe it to people is like, you might love apples. And then all of a sudden you're like, Ooh, I don't know if I love apples huh, mm. what would happen if I looked at oranges or grapes sure. or strawberries? You know, you acknowledging and trying all those different fruits, again, does not negate the presence of the apple. You're not abandoning the apple. You can always mm. go back to it when you want to. But don't be afraid to go and uncover and let go of these pre-existing notions that you have and to be a little confused for a while. That's the thing that we're always scared of is uncertainty and confusion. We live in a world where if we have a question, we can find an answer like that on Google. I would a friend, you know, we can ask many different people. And if we're questioning, you know, what are all the planets? What are the names of the planets again? Oh, let me just look that up really quick. You know, we can find answers to questions very quickly. So we're used to having this immediate satisfaction and gratification Mm. after a brief moment of uncertainty. What I would encourage and advise people is do not be in a rush to reach certainty. And in fact, that shouldn't be your goal. That's Mm -hmm. a good, that's a good word. Your goal should not be certainty. Your goal should be curiosity. Yes. All of these different questions, be uncomfortable with things not making sense. Look at violence in the Bible, not pretty, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. look at, look at sexism in the Bible, look at racism in the Bible, look at all those things that don't make sense. And, and um, reading the Bible, uh, Reading While Black by Esau Macaulay is one of the best books that I always recommend for people that are wanting to engage with scripture in this kind of way. It's a great starter. Um, True to Our Native Land is a commentary in the uh, on the Bible from an African-American perspective with African-American scholars and black scholars. Um, so, yeah, look at all of these different perspectives. Look at commentaries where the scholars that created these commentaries aren't white, you know, <laughs> All her story. That's another good one. Um, 
Another book that I just want to recommend, if we're just like recommending resources. <laughs> Let's throw them out there. It's so good. It's called Queering Christianity, Finding a Place at the Table for the LGBTQI plus Christians. That's a really great book. Another um, scholar that I would look into is Dr. Bonnie Morris. Um, she's at George Washington University. and She specializes in a lot of these kinds of theologies, looking at LGBTQ and women's rights and all of that. Um, she has a book or an article. Um, I wrote it down so I would remember the name of it. His, the History of Lesbian, Gay, and Bisexual and Transgender gender Social Movements. Mm-hmm. Um, great, great article by Dr. Bonnie Morris. And so, yeah, d- don't be afraid to be confused, to get your hands messy, and don't be in a rush to wash your hands. Yeah. <laughs> and stay yeah. in that space and don't be in a rush for things to make sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think there's, um, that's so good because I think there's like a fear of becoming a prodigal son. And it's like, oh, if I step away, and I feel like we've talked about this a lot amongst ourselves of if I step away, like, I'll just go back or the opposite of, oh, I'm stepping away. And actually, I don't think I'm coming back. And the expectation, oh, you'll come back. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's a it's a really interesting space to sit in, especially while you're questioning, discovering and trying on different things. One of my favorite teachers talks about well, you act, if you haven't tried it on, you actually don't know if it's true for you yet. Like, mm-hmm. give something a chance, see how it goes, and you can change your mind. Like, there's freedom in that. And so I think there's a lot of value to um, what you said. Don't be in a rush to get back to certainty. Yeah, and actually, one of the things, too, you said that's really key is this idea of leaders providing alternative viewpoints that don't align with their own. Um, Because I think the temptation in the church so often is, here is a leader expert who agrees with me 100% and can better explain why what I say is true. Mm. Like, and uh, I mean, I was having this conversation with my mom literally yesterday where we're we're exploring all sorts of like topics on this podcast that make her uncomfortable. And that's great. And it's fostered some interesting conversations. And her temptation to me is always to be like, Kel, you got to have this person on your podcast to provide the counterpoint to that point that makes me uncomfortable. And a lot of my, I I keep having to explain, like the point of this podcast is not to um, continue to enforce the viewpoints that we've all learned continuously are the right way. The point of it is to bring forth other viewpoints and to let people sit with them Mm -hmm. without trying to control them back into the like majority narrative. And I think that's so hard for people in the church to do because it feels like, um, I don't know, leading people astray or um, I don't know, sending them down a dark path or whatever, whatever sort of sure. feeling comes along with that. But it actually is so important to, to hold space for people who have opposing viewpoints and to just honor them and then that be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I think that some of that comes to with the this like fear that I see a lot of uh, Christians have of of not being represented Yeah, when in fact they are very heavily represented. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this constant fear of um, 
or like this illusion of being marginalized or being oppressed, I think, within the American evangelical church, when in fact they are some of the least oppressed and least marginalized people. And there's ways that they twist Bible verses to justify that and that they are sharing in the oppression of Jesus when in fact the oppression of Jesus is so much more than anything that these American evangelicals are experiencing. This is a walk in the park compared to what it was like to be a Christian in or a Jesus follower in, um, you know, the, the early church and the persecution that they faced. And so... Um, that's fascinating. Just like when, when I hear about that, um, and the idea of like, well, we need to make sure that the Christian voice is heard. And it's like, well, actually the Christian voices is, is very heard. We we've heard it. Like I hear the same thing when people are anti-feminist, they're like, well, we need to make sure the male voice is heard. And it's like, whoo, the male voice is everywhere. The yeah. male voice is the voice. <laughs> and so we don't need to make sure it's heard. We need to fight for these other voices to get at least a sliver of the platform. Mm-hmm. You know, acknowledging someone's pain doesn't negate someone else's pain. Yeah. Yeah. With the Black Lives Matter, when people said, well, all lives matter. I'm like, well, all lives mm-hmm. don't matter till each lives matter. Mm-hmm. And and that's a really hard concept to grasp. But it's this idea of, and I always use the, the um, like the metaphor of a mom with multiple kids. It's like, if you're a mother and you have three kids and you love them all equally. Well, if one of them, let's say all of a sudden develops diabetes you know, God forbid. And then you've all of a sudden got to give this child a little bit more attention as you walk through this journey of this new medical condition, right? You've got to get all this new equipment. You've got to understand, you've got to do all this research. You've got to spend a little bit more time with that kid and walk them through it and explain it. You know, the uh, no one would go to the mother and say, you know, I'll say, Heather, all your kids' lives matter. The mother's like, yeah, I know, but this child needs a little bit more attention because he's really going through it. And so, you know, if you look at it like that, of course, all three of those kids' lives matter. No one would go to that mother and say, you need to stop focusing on little Johnny because your other two kids are just as important. You don't think that mother knows that? You don't think a mother has the capacity to acknowledge one child's pain without negating the presence and value of their other children's lives? Of course not. So why can't we as a country understand that? We do the same thing with every, you know. So to me, that's that same concept. It's this whole idea, you know, especially with it, with this evangelical community, there tends to be this, you know, no pun intended, but this black and white um, kind of extremism with things where you, if you say black lives matter, you are inherently saying that only black lives matter. And it's like, that's not what's happening. N- yeah. Noticing and acknowledging the pain of one demographic does not negate the value of another. Um, and acknowledging that seems silly when you say it out loud, you're like, of course, but it's a complex yeah. issue to the evangelical church that I hope they will eventually be able to reconcile. Mm. Yeah. Well, Savannah, it has been such a gift and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. You are such a studied and thoughtful, authoritative woman with probably hours and hours more <laughs> information that we could extract from yeah. your beautiful, beautiful brain. Wish we could just like sit at your feet and just listen to you <laughs> <laughs> all day long. I want to Martha at your feet. Oh, no, gosh. No, no, no. Um, um, <laughs> but, uh, we can't keep you here forever, um, as much as we'd like to. And so, um, I want to, um, 
conclude our amazing conversation today with the question that we ask all of our guests. It is open to interpretation, and I'm so excited to hear what you have to say, but what does woman being mean to you? Here would be my answer to that. (laughs) Woman being would mean that every woman has the freedom and ability to express and live out what woman being means to her. So that allows for other women who have different interpretations of what woman being is, no matter what each woman believes that means to her, she has the freedom and ability to live that out. That is what a full holistic meaning of woman being would be for me, because it would mean that women are being, you know, everything they can be and have the potential to be. So that would kind of be my (laughs) meta definition of it is woman being is when every woman has the freedom and ability um, and access to living out what woman being means to her. I love that. I don't think we've ever heard woman being as like an ideal or Mm -hmm. like a goal, but I think like there is a, there is a woman being future. When I hear that word, I'm like, oh God, immediately when you asked me that, I thought, I wonder what other women's definitions of that are. And then I thought, well, Mm. I don't want to belittle or pigeonhole this definition. So I think the freedom would be for everyone to live out their definition. (laughs) Give the freedom. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that falls so well in line with all that we've talked about today, too, in terms of inclusivity and, um, you know, allowing everyone to seat it at the metaphorical table, uh, Every, every person gets to manifest what their woman being is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And so you already spouted off like a million amazing resources, it sounds like. But I also wanted to give you an opportunity to plug your own platforms, your new organization. Let's, let's elaborate. Oh, my gosh. What is it? Please elaborate. So please, please elaborate. We launched October 4th. And we are a resource. Our motto is straightforward resources on complex topics. We provide resources and guides to help communities, workplaces, and just individuals navigate how to have hard conversations. And just our first book is called How to Talk to People. It's just how to get back into conversation post-COVID. How to have those Mm, awkward conversations in a more fluid and effective way. Yeah. And so that's please on Instagram. It's just at please elaborate. And you can find me on Instagram at Savannah Ray Correno. I'm over there doing videos all the time, just filming in the living room. (laughs) And that's how we found you. And there's been a lot of great content. Yay. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Um, And thank you again for being here today. Thank you, Kellyanne and Emma, for being here today. Oh, thank you, um, Kelly. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. I always think of um, Princess Diaries. Thank you for being here today. Yes, exactly. Um, thank you for being here today. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's such a gift. Um, I'm always continually surprised when people respond back with this, an enthusiastic yes to sit with us and talk with us. And so um, I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as well. And woman beings, I hope you enjoyed the conversation as well and that you continue to join the conversation. If you want to um, hop on the woman being train and have not already on social media, we are on Instagram at woman being podcast and TikTok, which is recently becoming a more thriving conversational community for us. So that's been really special and really fun. So um, definitely hop on there, join the conversation. We've loved the comments, questions, 
um, and all sorts of discourse that we've gotten. The stitches and the duets, that's a little more new for me, but we're working on it. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, if you don't follow us, please follow us on, I guess, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, whatever podcast platform you prefer. And please leave us a review because if you support and enjoy the work that we're doing, that is one of the things you can do to help us find more people like you who are having conversations like this. So again, Savannah, thank you. Thank you. I had so much fun. <laughs> and um, with that, we'll close. So have a wonderful rest of your day and goodbye. <laughs>